to Romans chapter 8. And to keep the context before us, we read once again the first 18 verses of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This evening I call your attention to verses 5 through 8 of Romans 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. 
so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have seen, the purpose of the inspired apostle in this eighth chapter of the book of Romans is to establish to our assurance the wonderful truth set forth in the first verse, which verse is the concluding summary of the great truth that the apostle had unfolded in the previous chapters, the great truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Evidence for the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is that they are freed from the law of sin and death. And freed by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Through the death of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, God condemns sin in the flesh so that it no longer has any legal right to hold us in bondage and therefore no power to reign in us. We are freed in Christ Jesus and by his Holy Spirit. We also saw in verse 4 this morning that the purpose of our freedom from the law of sin and death is that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So the truth is established that the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus, grounded upon his perfect work in justifying us, is a work that's full and complete to the glory of our Redeemer. Christ's work in our justification is a work, therefore, that also comes to expression in our sanctification and ultimately in our glorification. Such is the magnitude of the salvation sovereignly worked by the Spirit of Christ. From beginning to end, our salvation is God's work by his Holy Spirit. We notice at the conclusion of verse 4, that the apostle repeated the words found at the end of verse 1. Verse 4 reads that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And it's here that the apostle begins to distinguish very sharply two kinds of people. And he does so to demonstrate that those who claim by faith the declaration of God, no condemnation, are only those who are in Christ Jesus 
and therefore in whom the life of Christ comes to expression by the Spirit. So he's going to show the nature of the Spirit's work in us. And he's going to do that in contrast to those who have not the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The contrast is that of death and life. That's the contrast. And in these verses that we consider this evening, verses 5 through 8, the focus is on the unpleasant reality of the devastating effects of sin. Why is it that the fulfillment of the righteousness of the law will be only true in those who walk after the Spirit? For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The contrast that we consider this evening is the same sharp antithetical contrast found throughout the Bible. It's the contrast that finds its basis in God's sovereign and eternal decree of election and reprobation. But it's a contrast that comes to manifestation. It's the contrast of death and life, of unbelief versus faith, of rebellion over against that which pleases God. It's the contrast set forth in 1 John 3 verse 10 to mention but one example. In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Tonight... Because of our text, the focus is going to be on the negative, on spiritual death, on that human existence apart from Christ. When we get to the following section, the Lord willing, next Sunday morning, then the emphasis will turn to the positive, the wonder of the Spirit's work in us who are in Christ Jesus. But tonight, as we consider Romans 8, verses 5 through 8, we consider that this text under the theme, the sharp contrast, death and life. And we notice that this is, first of all, a contrast of the mind. Secondly, it's a contrast that reveals man's death. And finally... It's a contrast that shows our great need. The contrast set forth here is immediately revealed as a contrast of the mind. Each of the verses, 5 through 7, call attention to the mind of man. 
The mind referred to in these verses is a term that refers to one's mindset or way of thinking. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. To be carnally minded, literally to have the mindset of the flesh, is death. That refers to a person's way of thinking. The apostle expresses himself the same way in his epistle to the Philippians. To mind something is to focus one's attention on something. The term includes not just thoughts and understanding, but the object of pursuit, the attention that we might give something. When Paul says, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, He's speaking of something that we readily observe. We're surrounded by that way of thinking. You probably work with those whose mindset is to get through the day at work in order to enjoy the pleasures of life. And especially do those pleasures come to focus on the weekend. To mind the things of the flesh, therefore is to have a mind that's consumed with what gives the greatest pleasure, the greatest satisfaction, and therefore the things that we would seek after most of all. So the first thing we notice about the person who has not Christ is that he or she is dominated by the fallen nature consumed by and concerned about the things of the flesh. Now, that term flesh does not imply that sin is something material, that it's something that dwells exclusively in the body. Jesus, after all, assumed our flesh and blood, yet he was without sin. Sin is not material. Sin is spiritual and ethical. Flesh speaks of this entire human nature as dominated by sin. It's true, therefore, that sin becomes manifest through the flesh. That is, through the body and the lusts of the human mind. But we must not limit the term to the pleasures that come only through the earthly senses or sins that belong only to the body. The term is much more comprehensive. Flesh speaks of the entire human nature, body and soul and mind, as it functions under the power and dominion of sin. And the comprehensive nature of that term is brought before us in a passage such as Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. 
Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, that is, lust run rampant, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, that is, contentiousness, emulations, which refers to a a zeal for retribution, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, which tells us that this is only a list of examples, not exclusive. And you notice that many of the things mentioned in the list are matters of the heart and of the mind. So we need to remember that the term flesh denotes everything which is opposed to the mind and life of the spirit. Every aspect of life in which we would exclude God and cast him aside. To mind the things of the flesh or to be carnally minded includes business and financial interests without God. It includes social interests without God. Finding our fellowship with the world, which friendship with the world is enmity with God, James 4 verse 4. It would include seeking a love interest without regard to the purpose for which God created marriage. It would include seeking a husband or wife while rejecting the truth that marriage is to reflect the great mystery of Christ and the church and therefore which requires marrying only in the Lord. Minding the things of the flesh would include various political interests without regard to God and his word. It would include self-advancement and promotion without God in our thoughts. I mentioned but a few examples. God is excluded from thoughts and actions. And as becomes evident in the contrast set forth in the text, those who mind the things of the flesh are those who have not the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and therefore are not spiritually minded. Verses 5 and 6 both set forth sharp contrast. Lives that are antithetical one over against the other. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit do mind the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. 
but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That little word, but, is an adversative setting two contrasts over against each other. The contrast set forth here is that of minding the things of the Spirit. They that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. The word after here, they that are after the Spirit, is used in the same sense that it is used in the expression, they that are after the flesh. They who are after the Spirit are dominated by the Spirit, by the Word that the Spirit ministers. And the reference is to the the Spirit of the exalted Christ in whom we have life. In the following verses of this chapter, the Apostle will develop more fully that work of the Holy Spirit in us, and what an amazing work that is. What a wonderful work that we, we must not overlook. But we must understand some basics in that connection if we are to properly understand this text. In the context, we can understand the work of Christ in realizing our justification by his perfect atoning work is a work that must be applied to the hearts and minds of all those whom the Father has given him and for whom he has died. All the blessings of salvation merited by Christ in his perfect work on our behalf are blessings that he promised to bestow upon his church by his Holy Spirit. At this point, however, we have to confront a common error in the church. It is widely taught and even confronted by our Reformed fathers already at the Senate of Door, commonly taught that God gives all the blessings of Christ to the sinner and gives the sinner spiritual power to take to himself those blessings of salvation. And after God has done his part, it's up to man to do his part to convert or to continue unconverted. And our canons address that error in the third and fourth heads of doctrine, Article 12. Another error it addresses is the error that teaches that God provides the believer with sufficient power to persevere and is is ever ready to preserve him if he will do his duty. And the canons address that in the fifth head of doctrine, in the, reject, the section of the rejection of errors, Article 2. The canons reject that teaching as being contrary 
to the prevailing agreement of the evangelical doctrine which takes from man all cause of boasting and ascribes all praise for this favor to the grace of God alone. Again, as we continue our study of this chapter, we will see, at least in part, how the Spirit works and the nature of his work in us But it's only when we understand and lay hold of the truth that salvation is God's work from beginning to end that we will also understand how absolutely necessary is the Spirit's work in us. That we mind the things of the Spirit and note well, we mind is to be attributed entirely to the work of the spirit of life in us. The spirit applies all the work of reconciliation to us who are in Christ Jesus. The spirit regenerates us, establishing within us that living union to Christ by faith. The Spirit calls us from death unto life. The Spirit dwells in our hearts and so governs our lives that we are no longer after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who so working in us directs our attention to the things above, to the things of the Spirit. What are those things? They're things that the Spirit has received from Christ. The Spirit testifies of Christ. That's his glorious work. And he applies those things to our hearts and minds, so working in us that we embrace them, delight in them, and do them. They are the things that flow out of our love for God. Even as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 26, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. And because love speaks of activity, not mere feelings, love speaks of activity, that means that to mind the things of the Spirit is also to be a doer of the Word. It's not just to have an intellectual interest in God's truth. Even a zeal for God's truth, as did the Pharisees, who were hostile toward Christ and his people. A Christian is one who has been awakened by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and therefore one who has the mind of Christ, Philippians 2 verse 5, and one of humble obedience to the will of God. Once again, 
bear in mind the contrast of the text is a contrast of death and life. That's the contrast. It's the contrast of one who is dead in sin, apart from Christ, and one who has the life of Christ. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who are the children of God. We walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You do, don't you? A Christian who does not mind the things of the spirit is a contradiction in terms. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. The life of Christ that proclaims to us no condemnation is a life that is ours spiritually by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we mind the things of the Spirit. That's why we are aware of and troubled by our own sinfulness. Yes, we still struggle with the things of the flesh. That's because so long as we are on this earth, we still have our sinful nature to deal with. The apostle grieved that fact in Romans 7, and we know it by our own experience. But it is because the things of the Spirit are our chief interest, We hate our sin. We hear and respond to the call to repentance and live to the glory of our Redeemer. That latter, after all, is the chief work of the Spirit. As we read in John 16, verse 14, where Jesus said, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine And shall show it unto you. The contrast therefore in our text. Is stark. The contrast of death. Versus life. So we call attention secondly. To this contrast that reveals man's death. For to be carnally minded. Is death. This is the terrible reality of an existence apart from Christ in whom alone is life eternal. Death is that which defines an unbeliever according to the Bible. In Ephesians 2 verse 1 Setting forth the glorious truth of the gospel, Paul writes, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. He says the same thing in Romans 8 verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. Death. The apostle 
is setting forth here the essence of death. Death is to be estranged from God. It is to live, therefore, as if there were no God. That's death. Psalm 10, verse 4, expresses it this way. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. They're dead. Dead to God. Dead to all spiritual realities. Dead to their own spiritual welfare. Dead to Christ. The mind of the flesh simply shuts them out to the gospel of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote, In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. And the Spirit has to give us life and reveal to us those things of God. Else a man might sit in church, even a faithful church, Week after week, month after month, year after year, and the things of God are foolishness to him. The preacher is preaching to a dead man. It's horrible. But that's spiritual death. And death is not inactive. No more than spiritual life is inactive. Death is not a state of nothingness. That death, that spiritual death, is defined in terms of enmity against God. That's death. And this once again demonstrates that Paul is speaking here about that contrast between death and life between one who's not a Christian and one who has been taken into Christ by the Spirit and given Christ's life. The carnal mind is death because the carnal mind is enmity against God and cannot and is not subject to the law of God. Think about that. Enmity against God. God, our creator, the giver of every good gift, is worthy of our love and adoration. He made us that we might show forth his praise. He has given us a measure of health and strength. He's given us jobs that we might serve him in the provision of our families and the causes of his kingdom, in general, to express our thanksgiving to him for all that he's given us. He's the one who's given us our relationships in life, 
with the calling to serve him in those relationships. He has surrounded us with the works of his hands, magnificent works, works that themselves proclaim his glory. The psalmist confessed in Psalm 86, verse 8, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. He sets himself before us in all his glory, and he says, you must love me. You must love me. But enmity is the opposite of love. Enmity is the hatred that arises from within, from the depths of our being. It's the contempt of soul which refuses to glorify God, refuses even to acknowledge him, refuses to bow before his authority and to seek his will in our lives. And that enmity is against God. Mind you, it's enmity against the only true God. There are many who claim to worship God. Many who to some degree or another even attempt to live their lives with regard to the God they serve. But set before them the God of the scriptures the God of truth and righteousness, the God who upholds his holiness in perfect justice, who saves his people only through Christ, and therefore only those whom he has chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, they gnash their teeth at you. They will tell you, I don't believe in such a God. They will only have a God that fits their way of thinking. And they will insist that their God wants them to be happy. Even in sin. So rather than taking up their cross and bowing before the authority of his word, they will do what they want to do. They would remove God from his throne to sit there themselves. Mind you, this carnal mind which is enmity against God describes every single person who has not the life of Christ who has not the spirit of Christ do you believe that do you believe what the word of God says here this is a hard truth not hard to understand as set forth here but hard to accept There are a lot of nice people in the world. 
In fact, you don't have to look very far to find people in the world that are nicer than church people to our shame. And then the text says that the carnal, this carnal mind, which is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And there are those who say, oh, this goes too far. I know many unbelieving people that keep God's law. They don't, they don't run off with other women and commit adultery. They certainly don't steal. If they borrow something from you, you can lend knowing you'll get it back again. They wouldn't think of murdering anyone. There are some who would find so much good in the unbelieving, they want to speak of some kind of grace of God working in them. Call it common grace. But this we have to understand. The law of God is not defined merely by the words of the commandments, by the letter of the law. Sin is not something so shallow. That law expounded by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount is defined by the demand to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. In addition, the apostle in speaking of the carnal mind being defined as enmity against God does not mean that every action and thought of man is a conscious expression of hatred toward God. What he means is that whether consciously or unconsciously, the carnal mind is controlled by this principle of enmity against God. By the work of the law written in their hearts, Romans 2 verse 15, they know that it's beneficial to obey the law of God outwardly. But in this regard for virtue, good order in society, and for maintaining an orderly external deportment, to use language now from our canons, men seek not the glory of God but themselves. As our canons express it in the third and fourth heads of doctrine, Article 4, men in various ways render their regard for virtue entirely polluted and hold it in unrighteousness, by doing which they show themselves inexcusable before God. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 8 is the necessary conclusion of this devastating judgment of the natural man. 
According to Proverbs 8, verse 30, God's delight is in his dear son. That means, therefore, that his delight is only in those who are in Christ Jesus. But Proverbs 11, verse 20, explains what that means. They that are of a froward heart are abomination to the Lord. But such as are upright in their way are his delight. To be carnally minded is death. Understand then, we have here a contrast that shows our great need. The wonder work of God through the Spirit of Christ will be set before us in the following verses. But the taste of it is given in the last part of verse 6. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Without that spirit is only death. Without that spirit is only enmity against God. Without that spirit, one is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Death is a horrible thing. I speak now of the death that consumes those who mind the things of the flesh. Death, we mentioned earlier, is spiritual separation from God. The only giver of life and peace. The despair in the world today is palpable. You can feel it. The hopelessness that consumes the minds of men and women and young people and even children is a hopelessness that has no bounds. The suicide numbers around the world are astronomical. And they've been increasing dramatically in the last few years. The hand of God's judgment rests heavily upon the human race. The text points us, however, to God's provision for our great need to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be spiritually minded is the source of life and peace. The world likes to talk about becoming spiritual. And they like to say, don't confuse religion with spiritual. Of organized religion, there's a little room. It's all about being spiritual. But it isn't as if one can become spiritually minded and that way gain life and peace. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
It's a proof of the fact that we have life in Christ Jesus. And peace is the opposite of all the turmoil and hopelessness and despair that mars the lives of those who have not the life of Christ. Peace is to have harmony with God. Instead of being spiritually opposed to him. Peace is to know God's favor. To know that there is therefore now no condemnation for me. Peace is to know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. That's the wonderful work of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Which has made me free from the law of sin and death. That stark contrast has been set before us tonight. Death and life. Do you live? Do you have the life of Christ? Then thank God for his unspeakable gift. Amen. Gracious Father, When we consider what we are by nature, what we have been, and the hopelessness and despair that was rightfully ours, and we contemplate now the wonder of thy grace in reaching down and grasping us by thy Holy Spirit, to give us the life of thy dear Son. We give thanks to thee. And we pray that thou wilt continue to give us to hear that wonderful gospel of our salvation and to see the wonder work of the Holy Spirit of Christ in our lives, in the midst of this congregation, and in thy church as we are able to see it. And Heavenly Father, continue that work in us to the glory of thy grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.